Please turn with me to page 1236 in your Bibles there. We're reading from Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, on page 1236. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes... I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. Well, this is the second in a series of 13 talks on the book of Revelation. And uh, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday evening, Sean kicked it off by looking at chapter 1. And uh, by way of a summary, really what he was saying was, he was reminding us that this book, or I mean really is, it, it's a letter, is a revelation, uh, an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's written in the context of opposition. John was locked up in an Alcatraz-type island called Patmos for preaching the gospel and for his witness for Jesus. And John sees a vision of the risen Lord revealed in all his divine majesty, authority, and power. And he hears from him, and this really was the main point, a word of comfort, reassurance, and encouragement. Don't be afraid. And as we begin to dig deeper into some of the scary, apocalyptic writing, it's worth bearing that command in mind. Don't be scared by it all, because some of it really is quite scary. And this evening it's my turn to look at chapters 2 and 3, and there's an awful lot in here. So I need the help of the Holy Spirit, so just before we start, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, be with us now by your Spirit to help us understand more about you your character, and the love you have for us. And may the words that I speak be spoken in the name of the Son of Man, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen. 
Well, apart from chapters 2 and 3, these two chapters, the book of Revelation is very rarely preached on. It's rarely read and is probably the most neglected book in the Bible. It shouldn't really be so because it is the climax of the New Testament. But of course, for some, the book of Revelation is an obsession. It's fertile ground for outlandish views, literal interpretation, people seeking indicators in everything in modern life, telling them when Christ is going to come back. It could be three Bs on a credit card taken to be the three sixes. Um, It could be all sorts of things. And it's unsurprising that this, this letter, this book, has caused the church many problems down the years, from the Montanists in the second century to the cult that up until last Wednesday was holed up in a cave in Russia, awaiting the end of the world, either this month or in May. I looked at a report in the Times that uh, a Russian priest who was an expert in the book of Revelation and the Apocalypse was called on by the local mayor to speak to the guys down this cave through a, through a ventilation shaft, telling them that actually the end of the, no one knew when the end of the world was going to come. Um, our hope is that um, anyone who is able to sit through all of these sermons will be qualified at the end to go and minister to any underground cults at the end of the series. But I mean, that sort of behavior doesn't really help evangelism, does it? It doesn't sort of help Christianity. But we do have to accept that this book holds a strange fascination and power over us. And tonight I'm going to look at just one aspect of chapters 2 and 3. The actual message of the letters, the message it has for the seven churches, is going to be looked at by Jonathan Lamb in June. What I am going to look at in particular is what these letters have to tell us about the nature of Christ After all, it's all a revelation about him. First of all, it's worth noting that each of the seven letters is addressed to one of the Asian churches. And the order in which they're written is in a circle. It starts in Ephesus and it goes round in a circle. And it would be the route that you would take if you were the DHL courier delivering this letter around the different churches. Each letter follows a similar pattern. Uh, They they, they all balance praise and criticism. And the first thing is there's an announcement. There's an announcement of both who the recipient is and who the author is. And a description of the author depicted in glory in different terms. Then there's an assertion. I know. In most instances, offering some sort of praise. And then there's a message, usually a rebuke. But I hold this against you. Then there's an appeal that he who has an ear, who has ears, let him hear. And then they all finish with a most wonderful eschatological promise, a promise about the end times, the end of the world, the end of our lives, what's going to happen to us. Um, I'm now going to look at each letter in turn just to pick out some of the points that reveal something to us about Jesus. And this is going to have to be a real canter through. And so I want you to imagine that what I'm doing is I'm just looking for little pieces of evidence to lift out of those letters that will go together to form a photofit image of Christ by the time I get to the end of the seventh letter. So, to the first letter. 
chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Well, helpfully, just before in uh, chapter 1, verse 20, we're told by Jesus what the seven stars are um, and the... uh, that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. It's just a shame the rest of Revelation doesn't have Jesus giving us such a quite uh, a clear interpretation. But anyway, so the angels are widely held to, be the, to represent the pastors or leaders of those churches. There are other interpretations, but that's the most widely held one. And so we have a picture of Christ holding the leaders of the church in his right hand. And for me, um, that feels, um, that feels, that has, that brings different feelings to mind. There's a feeling of, isn't it wonderful? I'm being cradled in his right hand. But the other thought is, if I get it wrong, it could just go like that. Anyway, so he's holding the leaders in his right hand and he's walking around amongst the churches, almost as if he's on patrol, inspecting them. And we also see in verse 5 that he threatens to remove the lampstand from its place if we do not repent. Remove the church, wipe it off the face of the earth perhaps, or close it down. And lastly, that he also hates certain types of behavior. And so on to the next. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The first and the last. This is a reoccurring theme, beginning and end. We've already sung about it. The first and the last, the alpha and omega. Um, Those terms are mentioned eight times in the book of Revelation. And then he goes on to mention once again that he died and came to life again. It's funny that some church leaders can doubt the resurrection when Christ is so emphatic about it here. And he also reveals the way in which he transcends time when he says in verse 10, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So he can see into the future. He was and is and is to come. And then on to the next church, Pergamon. To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Double-edged sword is mentioned six times in scripture and is associated with retribution and judgment. But I think it's probably best known in the book of Hebrews where the writer describes God's word being sharper than any double-edged sword. And then to the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of God expression is used 41 times in Scripture. One of the many names Jesus uses for himself. In chapter 1, he was called called the Alpha and Omega, the Lord, the Almighty, Son of Man, the First and the Last, the Living One. And in these two chapters, we see also the Son of God and Witness. They're all names that tell us something about the character of Christ and highlight a particular aspect of his role within God's plan for our redemption. 
and then that his eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And he searches hearts and minds. He searches hearts and minds. So we've got lots of, lots of evidence there. This picture of Christ is, is building up. So on to chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God um, is believed to be the Holy Spirit. The seven stars are the leaders of the seven churches. And Jesus goes on to say that he is the one who will come like a thief in the night. And then to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. His words are holy and true. How we yearn for truth today. How so often we doubt what we're told. And here is Jesus saying his words are holy and true. And then he holds the key of David. Now I wonder what on earth that means. Well, I believe the key of David represents Christ's authority to open the door of invitation into his future kingdom. After the door is opened, no one can close it. Salvation is assured. But once it's closed, no one can open it, as judgment is certain. So Christ holds the key to that. And then finally, the letter that we had read to us tonight. What does he write to the church in Laodicea? To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He is the faithful and true witness. He's seen it all. He's been there throughout time, since before time began, and he will continue being there until it finishes. And he is nothing less than the ruler of God's creation. Well, we've just cantered through those seven letters to see, just to get a a glimpse of how Jesus portrays himself in those letters. But how do we typically view Jesus? Is it through toe-curling stereotypes? Or perhaps, if we're a little bit more modern, as portrayed in films? I think these are probably a a lot more believable, perhaps. Or perhaps if we're more orthodox, through icons. And then there's the, the picture that I think is perhaps inspired by the Turin Shroud. We all have a mental picture of Christ in our mind. But what we gain from the revelation of St. John is this. Christ holds the church leaders in his right hand and walks around amongst the churches, looking, watching, seeing, weighing what's going on. He knows everything. He is a jealous God and will remove lampstands or churches that don't repent. He hates certain types of behavior. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and omega. He died and he came back to life again. He holds the future in his hands. He has a sharp, double-edged sword. He's the Son of God. 
His eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Possibly a little like this. I couldn't actually find a particular picture. He certainly hasn't got bronze feet there. But anyway, that gives you a rough idea. He searches hearts and minds. He holds the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that nothing can, can, can take place on this planet without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in his hands. And he will come like a thief in the night. And his words are holy and true. And he has the authority to open the door of invitation into his future kingdom. But after that door is opened, no one can close it. That's fantastic news. But once it's closed, no one can open it. And he's the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, these are, of course, just words. And they're just words written in some book. What is to stop anyone else using such hyperbole to describe themselves? Well, of course, I suppose there's nothing to stop people describing themselves like this. So let's have a look at some others who've described themselves in a similar manner or made the same claims. Can you tell me who they are? Any ideas? David Koresh, the Waco, Waco siege. Next one, suggested to me by the vicar. Do you remember these people? I think probably got to be over about 30 years old. David Icke, yeah. Next one. A little harder, this one. David Shaler, an MI5 agent who blew the whistle. After proclaiming himself God, he went on to explain, what I'd say to people is, do I look mentally ill? Do I sound mentally ill? Being a Christian, I'm not going to answer that question. And finally, just in case you think uh, you're called David and you think I've got a bit of a downer on your name this evening, let's try this one. Jim Jones. Do you remember that was really, really horrific? Back in, I think it was 1970. I remember that. So Jesus, however, leaves us no room with maneuver in how he would have us see him. There is no room to question who he thinks he is There are no doubts as to his supremacy. The difference is Jesus really existed. He really was executed. He really did overcome death by being resurrected and by seeing after his being being seen after his resurrection by hundreds of people. He wasn't a ghost as he ate and drank with these people, and he certainly wasn't a figment of their imagination. Unlike the rogues in that rogues gallery, this man has affected the life of man on this planet like no other man has, like no other government has, no other institution has. Jesus split time in two, time before him and time after him. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the ruler of God's creation who won victory over death. But let's not kid ourselves that he's some fluffy, lamb-cuddling, good-looking, square-jawed guy in a white kaftan. Would you suffer martyrdom for such a person? I suspect not. And yet, that is how many Christians view Jesus. 
I sat next to someone yesterday, and we were doing some case studies on something, and there was this scenario, and uh, I was asked my view, and I said, well, it's quite clear to me, this man has has been convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's why he's come to the, to the vicar to, to talk through things. Having done an alpha, the scenario was he'd done an alpha course and he was finding certain, some of his business practices incompatible with his newfound Christian faith. I said he's been convicted by the Holy Spirit. This woman let round to me and said, don't use that word convicted. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus loves us all. Saying the word convicted makes Jesus sound judgmental. Being a sensitive soul, and you may not believe this, but it's true, I said, well, well, perhaps he's been challenged instead. She said, oh, I'm very happy with that, very happy with that. I wonder if she's ever read John's Gospel, where Jesus says of his Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. She's in for a big shock. It's quite frightening. No, Jesus is not some fluffy, lamb-cuddling, good-looking guy in a white caftan. Because he searches our hearts and minds and knows everything there is to know about what is going on in here. He hates, he hates, doesn't dislike, he hates certain behavior. And the risen Lord reveals himself as the chief pastor of his flock, patrolling, inspecting, looking over his churches. Do you know, a shepherd back in first century Palestine had to be prepared to kill wild animals. It wasn't just a gentle sort of, oh, come to me, little lammykins, I'll give you some milk. He was, he was there. That's what King David, King David did when he was a child. He had his little slingshot and he used to kill wild animals. And he is looking, as he's patrolling around his churches, he's looking to see how much we love him. He's looking to see whether we are willing to suffer for him. He's looking to see whether the doctrine that underpins our teaching is truthful. He's looking to see whether our lives are holy. He's looking to see whether we are committed to mission. He's looking to see if we are sincere. He's looking to see if we are wholehearted in our faith. If he was here now, what would he think? If he was sitting next to you now, what would he think? He'd be searching your heart. It would be like some Bluetooth connection. You, you wouldn't even know it. He'd just be downloading. He'd be able to see straight into your heart what is going on. Well, I don't know about you, but that's quite a scary thought for me. Remember, God looks at us differently. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Next time you confess your sins, remember, remember that he sees everything. And his word is sharper than a double-edged sword. He will remove churches that don't repent of their lack of zeal. Probably not by some bolt of lightning, although that would be quite handy in some instances. But by removing his spirit. For what can prosper without the Holy Spirit? And we only need to look around us to see the number of dead and dying churches. To see God's judgment for a gospel message that has been watered down and has been compromised down the ages. Leaders who have lost their zeal for God's word and who simply go through their daily job 
just waiting until their pension is due. Please, God, protect us here from that mindset. And so if we are sensible, we must accept that there is no other option but to fear and to trust him. Fear because we need to face up to this reality that he came the first time as a child wrapped in swaddling clothes to save us, but that the next time he comes, he will come to judge. And all those who do not know him will find that day dreadful, as we will see later in the series. But we also need to trust him, because to those who know him, he says, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. You've got nothing to worry about. Your life is in my hands. Your future is in my hands. Your eternal salvation is in my hands. And once that door is opened, and you're through it, and you're saved, nothing, nothing can close that door. You're safe. To those who overcome, he makes corresponding promises of eternal life. We will have the right to eat from the tree of life in paradise with him. I don't know what it's going to taste like, but I bet you it's going to be like nothing on earth. To him who overcomes, he will not be hurt at all by the second death. Meaning he will not die eternally. To him who overcomes, he will be acknowledged by the Lamb in front of God. Imagine that on judgment day up there with, in front of God. And you, you'll hear about all this later on in Revelation. It's quite amazing. In front of the multitude of saints. We're going to be there one by one in front of God. And we'll probably do what John did in chapter 1. Which was to fall at his feet as if dead. And Jesus is going to be there saying, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Stand up. Dad, he's with me. He's okay. She's with me. She's okay. Imagine that. To him who overcomes will be given the right to sit with Jesus on his throne. I mean, that is awesome. To sit on Jesus' throne. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if George Bush, Bush said, Hey, Pete, fly out to Washington. Come and sit in the Oval Office with me. That would be quite cool. I'd probably get bored after a while. But imagine sitting on Jesus' throne with him. These are God's promises. And we must make sure that God's promises outweigh the fears. Yes, I've been preaching quite a scary message because I believe that's what we all need to hear. But don't let the fear outweigh the promises. The promises are awesome. Some here might accuse me of trying to frighten people into becoming Christians. Others might say that the picture I've painted is of an angry God, not the sort of loving God that they want. To the first, I would say that it is not only completely wrong and futile to try and frighten people into the kingdom, but it's completely unnecessary. This is because Jesus' promises are far, far more wonderful and attractive than the threats are frightening. You just have to read this to see that. And to the others, I would ask, what sort of angry God stands patiently at the door of our hearts, knocking and waiting to be allowed in? 
Look at um, chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And although this letter is addressed to the whole church, the passage is individual in its application. It's personal. It's between him and you. Me and him. It's personal. Yet even the church in Laodicea has a chance. Even that church that was lukewarm and there's this picture of it being spat out like that. Even this church has a chance. The fact that he rebukes the church shows that he he still loves her. And the threat of total rejection if she will not repent is balanced by the promise of total reinstatement if she will repent. And in verse 19... To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Are you feeling uncomfortable at what Jesus might be thinking about you right now? It could be because he's rebuking you through his Holy Spirit. But remember, he loves you. He only rebukes those he loves. And if you are convicted, then he's giving you time to change. Is he touching you today? Are you feeling convicted? If you are, then hallelujah, God is at work. God is at work the whole time. He's at work in our hearts. And so we need to be earnest and to repent. He calls us all to be zealous and to repent. Repentance is vital. We've saddened Jesus. We can't come back without saying sorry. He calls you to open the door of your heart and to invite him to come in. And there's this picture of Holman Hunt's light of the world. No handle on the outside. It's only on the inside. It's for us to open that door. He invites you to open that door. It's not a picture of an angry God, but a God of inestimable love, patience, and compassion. Maybe you opened the door in the past at a youth group or on a camp or in a or in a service or something like that, and perhaps you've slowly edged him out. Perhaps now it's as if you've put a sign on your heart saying, I'm a Christian, do not disturb. We don't like change, we don't like to be disturbed. If you reopen the door, he will challenge you. His spirit will come in, and his spirit will start touching those areas in our life which we need to change. It could be our prayer life, our worship, how often we read the Bible, our morals, the use of our money, the use of our time and ambitions. It could be quite a scary thought. And so often it's why people don't want to go there. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in all this stuff. But that's, that's enough for me. It's all, it's all here. I don't really want anything more than that because it starts to get scary. It's a dangerous place to be. What sort of Christian are you? Ask yourself. What are you afraid of? Is it Jesus? But if you're a Christian, you say you love him. But it's not enough to know the truth of the gospel in our heads. We need to believe it in our hearts with all our heart. It's not enough to know about God. We must know him personally. If I sup with him and he with me, it'll be intimate and unhurried. 
It's not, if you open the door, I'll come in and we'll just quickly have a big mat and then I'll go. There's a picture of intimacy. Him with me. Eating, sharing a meal. You, uh, we will find that what we've been missing, if you do that, is the flooding joy of his Holy Spirit and the reality of the indwelling power of Jesus. He who has ears, let him hear. The nature of Jesus as revealed in these seven letters has challenged our lives. They began with a plea for people to come back to their first love and they end with a plea to Christians to reopen their hearts and also with a plea to people who aren't yet Christians to let Jesus into their hearts. Will you? Will you open your heart today if it has been closed or perhaps never opened to Jesus? Will you open that door and let Christ in, but really let it in? And as somebody said after an 8 a.m. service, not just into your front hall, but let him into every single room in your house. Will you be intimate with him? Will you seek his face?